Good morning, everyone. The reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 4, which can be found on page 684 of the Pew Bible. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes." When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. The man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears, from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. 
Thanks, Libby. Good morning. You're all looking very handsome and attentive. Um, before we get going, I need to tell you that there's going to be a memorial service at 3.30 today and a visitation at 2 for Louisa Janie Hale. She um, passed away at 11 months of age at American Children's on January 29th. Um, her parents are David and Sarah Hale, who go here, and um, her brother is Jotham, who's in our children's ministry. He's, he's young, and... Um, she, um, her name, Louisa, means strong warrior, and her middle name means gift from God. She, um, she really displayed a lot of strength, and um, the, uh, all the people who worked with her in the hospital for all those months adored her. Um, when I was there, when she passed, the two nurses were sobbing and holding each other while she passed, and um, it was really beautiful, and um, this family has done a lot to love their child. And so this, uh, you'll, you'll grow spiritually if you come to this, uh, to this memorial service, and you'll also um, uh, show love for the Hales if you are able to come. So that's, um, that's later today. All right. Um, on that note, let's um, jump into the passage today. Yesterday, I spoke at the No Regrets Conference in, in Brookfield. It's a men's conference, and I was asked to speak on a topic. And uh, while I was at the book table afterwards, a, a gentleman came up to me and said, he said, you know, um, Nick, my daughter goes to UW, one of the UW campuses, and he said um, she, her faith is actually, like, blossomed in college. Like, the, the, the difficulties of being a secular university has actually strengthened her faith, and it's been great. But the one, one of the biggest questions she asks me is, um, not, not how do I believe in the truth of the gospel, but how do I deal with all the, the, the hatred? Like, just the, the absolute dislike and assumptions and, and even bigotries about being a Christian in that context. I mean, they just, if you're a Christian, they just hate you. <laughs> And she's like, I don't know what to do. I, I can't even, I don't even have a chance to love some of the people on my floor and in my dorm because they just preemptively assume that I'm a terrible person if I'm a believer. And, and my heart really went out, went out to that guy, and I, and I don't think he was probably exaggerating very much. And um, yeah, what I also know is that when I, whenever I talk about the fact that there is within our secular culture and for other reasons, a certain kind of opposition towards Christian faith. I know there are other people who feel like you've got to be really careful when you say something like that because um, there's also a certain amount of um, martyr complex that can come from assuming that inclusion is opposition, right? So there's a certain amount of sort of assumption about what American culture should be like and what people got accustomed to in American culture and always being on home base, being in that Christian culture, and that as the United States becomes a little less religious and, and a little bit more inclusive of people who are not naturally Christian in their understanding of ethics and politics and um, spirituality and all those kinds of things, um, that there's a certain amount of inclusion that's happening, and we can just get upset about that. And it's very easy to play the role of Sanballat while you're trying to play the role of Nehemiah. Right? You think you're Nehemiah, like, holding the line, and you're really Sanballat getting angry and offended and feeling attacked just because other people are trying to flourish. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that there's some truth to that. 
I'm partly sympathetic to that view. And then I've, I also know other really devout believers who would say something like, Nick, it's, 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 it's not helpful to talk about Christian persecution in America because don't you realize that in like 260 countries of the world, Christians are like really persecuted? Right? There, was a, there was a bishop in, um, in Nigeria who got his head sawed off last week or the week before. And 200 Christians in one village were killed by Boko Haram. In China, it's illegal to take kids to church. Do you know that? Like, it's, it's, it's enough that we can destroy your, your life by, like, surveillance and not let, allowing you to get jobs or credit. But, and also, you could go to church. It's fine. We're so, we're so good with religion. It's just illegal to take a child to church. That's all. Right? And, and like, in North Korea, you can be put in a concentration camp for being a Christian, right? However, and there, look, there's a lot of truth to that. Like, of those three views, which is right? And the answer is, well, it depends. They're all kind of right. Right? Like, if I, if I went to, uh, to a meeting about educational disparities in Madison, and I said—and people were like, you know, there's these educational disparities in Madison. We need to do something about it. I said, listen, the educational disparities in Madison are nothing like the educational disparities in, like, s- central India. So who cares? Right? Like, you're just—you're com- you're complaining about something that's completely out of proportion. If I said that in a meeting, do you have any idea what people would say to me? There would definitely be curse words. Like, it would not be received well, right? And rightly so. Just because injustice is worse somewhere else doesn't mean you don't deal with it in your own backyard. You don't call it what it is, right? If there's, if there's persecution of the faith and we have the capacity to stand up and say some, something about it, just because it is worse in North Korea and in China and in Nigeria, it doesn't mean it's not true here. You have to have a sense of proportion about it and a sense of thankfulness for what you're not facing. But it doesn't mean you shut up. We call things what they are, right? But it's also true that you have to be really careful because when you think you're facing opposition, the first reaction isn't meekness, it's wrath. You feel put upon, you feel embattled, you feel threatened, and the first human instinct is anger. And you can see this with the character of Sanballat and Tobiah in this text. Because it's easy to be like, well, he's the devil. He's just the devil, isn't he? He's terrible, that guy. Well, th- I mean, think about it from his perspective for a minute, right? He's been the ruler and governor in the trans-Euphrates for a while. And then all of a sudden, several decades ago, 40,000 Jews just come back from, from Susa or from Persia. Right? Like, there's not a lot of people who live in that land. It's, like, it's a lot of desert. The population is not very high. 40,000 people coming back is like a huge issue, right? And then they build an altar and start making sacrifices again. And then they build a temple and they start worshiping the Lord and gathering around it and coming from all their towns and getting a sense of an identity as a people. And now they're building a wall and rebuilding the greatest city of the region. What's going to happen to you? What's this going to mean? This is not inconsequential for you. This is very consequential for you. And it's perfectly reasonable that this guy would have felt threatened by it. He doesn't know these guys, right? And apparently Nehemiah has some kind of in with the emperor. Whenever you try to do something good, like whenever you try to build something, whenever you try to t- either in your own personal life or with some other people, you try something that's, that's really good, you're always going to face opposition. Christianly speaking, spiritually speaking, you're always going to face opposition from devils, 
And anthropologically speaking about our humanness, you're always going to face opposition from your own flesh. (laughs) Your flesh wants the easiest way. It doesn't want to do the hard thing. And then you're naturally going to face opposition from people. Right? That's always going to happen. And so we—and we need to realize that the natural response to it is to respond like Sanballat responded. Is to respond with wrath. Right? Or surrender. Those are the two normal responses. And they're about as bad as each other. And if we're going to respond differently because of what Christ has done in us and who he is, then, man, we're going to have to, like, figure out how to do that. So let's start with just a, a simple idea, which is overcoming opposition requires unyielding meekness. Okay, last week we talked about ferocious meekness. And this week I want to talk about unyielding meekness. There has to be a kind of meekness that's completely unyielding. And so if you weren't here last week or you're still working on this idea of meekness in your mind, you'd be like, that sounds like an oxymoron, Nick. Isn't meekness like the disposition to accommodate others? And so isn't unyielding meekness literally a contradiction? And the answer is no, not if you know what meekness is. And that's why I want to go back to this. But you'd be like, why are you going to preach about meekness again? Listen, I got to preach about it about nine weeks before we're all going to understand it, okay? So, so just— like, focus, right? So meekness is the opposite of wrath, not the opposite of confidence or assertiveness. At least in Christian spiritual language, in Christian theology, in the Bible, what meekness means is the opposite of wrath, not—it's not the opposite of assertiveness or confidence. That's why there can be a ferocious meekness, and that's why there can be an unyielding meekness, right? Wrath is— self-important, destructive anger that leads to sin in the face of conflict. So in the face of conflict, you react with wrath. You're mainly focused on how this affects you. You're self-important in your understanding of what's happening. You're self-indulgent, and then all your instincts, all your primal instincts of self-preservation, you just let them go. And you let them do what they want, and so you tend to be self-absorbed and self-focused in what you do, and it tends to be destructive. Like, because you don't really care about what, what the bigger picture. You don't really care about the future. You don't really care about unity or solidarity. You, you really don't care about all, all those things because you're not pursuing virtue. You're just pursuing something for you, and you want this conflict to end, and you want to push it back, and you want to come at it, and that's wrath, and it's not good. It is one of the seven deadly sins, meaning that not only can it destroy your soul, it'll destroy your life, it'll destroy the lives of others, and of course, most importantly, it'll destroy your soul. Do you understand? Meekness is the opposite of that in that it is humble and not self-important in its nature. It is self-forgetful because it's focusing on God, and it's constructive in its zeal. So there is passion. We'll we'll get to—we'll get—later in the sermon, we'll get to the difference between the, the opposite of sloth. What's the opposite of sloth, right? It's not working really hard, because you can be working really hard for reasons that have to do with vice. Industry is not the opposite of sloth. Zeal is the opposite of sloth. The desire and passion to do the good for God's sake is the opposite of sloth. Does that make sense? You can work 60 hours, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, and still be entirely given to the sin of sloth in your heart. Because you have no desire to do the good. You're only doing the selfish, the self-important, or the self-aggrandizing, or the self-advancing. You're not doing the good. And so you don't have zeal. You just have industry. Does that make sense? 
So these are very important distinctions. Okay, so meekness is the self-forgetful constructive zeal to do what is good in the face of conflict. Do you understand? And so that meekness, the zeal to do what is good that is constructive and self-forgetful and focused on God can be entirely unyielding when it's not supposed to be accommodating. Meekness always has the disposition to be accommodating out of love. Love is accommodating. When it can be, when you can accommodate another person and it's for their good, love's accommodating. It loves to serve the other person. But when being accommodating is for evil, then meekness and love and all virtue says no. That's the essence of true virtue. Right? So, here's a couple things related to that. The, the first is this. Anyone who wants to build has to be prepared for wrath. Because you're, you're always going to threaten somebody's flesh. Whenever you do something, when you say, look, we need to reform this thing. Well, there's somebody who's benefiting from that thing. Whenever you say, I'm going to come into this space. Well, there's somebody who already believes they own that space. When you say, I want to I do something to better myself. Well, there's a bunch of people who don't want to do that to better themselves. And they don't want to be made to feel like you're better than them. And so it bothers them. Like you just decide to go running three times a week and people will oppose you. Right? Like it, it, it's just because every act of goodness feels like an act of judgment, even if you're not being judgmental. To anybody who observes it, who's not doing it. And, and so you'll naturally get passive wrath People are just upset, and they don't even know why they're upset. They don't even know why they're opposing you. They don't even think they're opposing you. And then sometimes you'll get very calculated opposition of people who definitely know they're opposing you, and they definitely want to destroy you, right? So in Nehemiah 4.1, it says, When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. Then later, when they keep building, and they start putting the wall together, he gets very angry, and he takes it to the next level. Then he starts scheming with all the other nations that are all the way around. The Ashdodites, the, the people who live in Ashdod, that's on the western side of Jerusalem. And then he's on the eastern side. And so he's, he's getting together with all the nations all surrounding Jerusalem to scheme together so that they can attack them and so that they can sow confusion in the city, right? Which is exactly what he does. And he just keeps upping the ante. And as we go through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, he's not going to stop. He's too much of a coward to risk open war. But he's not going to stop trying to, de to destroy everyone. Right? So here are some applications of being ready for wrath. One is, you need to be acquainted with what wrath is. You need, to un you need to know what wrath is. You need to understand what wrath is. You need to understand it. Sing it in yourself. When was the last time you were angry and you did stuff that you shouldn't have done? Right? Like you're, you're like, what time is it? It's— it's 9.30. Okay, it's been an hour. You know, like, most of the time we get angry, right? That's an emotional response, okay? If we have an emotional response, right, both our sort of our cognitive thinking mind and our sort of primal desires and needs and feelings kind of come rushing up in that, and our bodies respond with chemicals and stuff, and like, we're in all, in all the midst of that, that's not an excuse to not do what's right. Do you understand? And when you feel all those things, we sometimes psychologically, people say, call it being flooded. I get so flooded, right? Well, that feeling of floodedness 
has partly to do with how much you let your body get flooded and how much you've been doing that in the past and how much you give yourself to it, right? If you have a real issue with anger, explosive anger, it's likely you've been feeding that and not stopping it for years. That's how, that's how you respond. Some people respond by withdrawal and stonewalling. Some people respond by yelling and screaming and cussing and swearing. And some people respond by throwing things, which is less legal nowadays, right? Um, but apparently Taylor Swift can get away with it in her songs, right? It's domestic violence is what that is, right? But like, the idea is, is that like, you have to understand wrath because you're going to find wrath in yourself, right? Like, we are full of wrath. The only thing that stops our wrath a lot of the times is what would happen to us if we did whatever we wanted, right? The, ha- the reason half our kids are alive is because of law enforcement, okay? Like, we know they would find us. Now, because we love Jesus, right? And so, like, you, like, we have to understand wrath to get a hold of it in ourselves. And then, secondly, we have to understand how evil is done and how good is accomplished. Like, you need to realize, like, the actions of this guy, Sanballat, should be so predictable. It always, it always surprises me when people have other people really hurt them in their lives in exceedingly predictable ways, and those people are really surprised. The Bible is full of instruction on how people predictively behave based on what they believe, what kind of character they have. People are extraordinary predictable creatures, right? In counseling, like, I can't tell you how, how often in counseling, like, I'll sit down with somebody, they'll talk to me for like two minutes, and then I'll say, okay, stop. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. They're like, how could you possibly know that? Because I'm a special snowflake, and I'm totally different than everybody else. And the answer is, no, like everything you did is so predictable based on the first few things you told me, and the beliefs that you have that are assumed in those things you did, and the character that's displayed in those first three things you did. Knowing your character and your assumptions and your first actions, I can tell you what's going to happen. It's extremely predictable. And wrath, and what happens, and what people will do, and how they will attack you, and how you will attack others, and how anger and wrath and being threatened flows and is so predictable. And you need to know it for two reasons. One, so you can stop yourself from doing it. So that you can recognize it in yourself before you start abusing the person you're talking to, before you let loose that feeling of anger that feels so good. Listen, wrath, the re- one of the reasons people like to do wrath is not just because it's productive. Wrath is productive sometimes and not productive sometimes. Sometimes you get your way, sometimes you don't get your way. One of the, re- the main reasons people do it is it feels so good to rage. It feels awesome. Right? In fact, almost all the deadly sins feel great. Right? That's the point. That's part of the point. That's one of the reasons why they're so addictive. They're short-term, they're unproductive, and they're wrong. Does that make sense? And so we have to learn. In fact, one of the, the, the Bible assumes from beginning to end that what maturity looks like is the ability to discern the difference between good and evil and to be able to choose it and to know how it works. So, for example, at the very beginning, the first thing the human beings interact with under God's leadership is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and how they are supposed to interact with that knowledge of good and evil. Are they to receive it from God in time as they're taught by him, or are they to steal it? Are they supposed to receive the knowledge from God so they know how to bear his image and be like God as a human being, or are they to steal the knowledge of good and evil so that they can be like God's, right? All the way through the Bible till you get to the book of Hebrews, 
where the author of Hebrews says, I can't tell you the important stuff because you guys are basically just infants in Christ. But he's like, but the mature, right? How does he define maturity? The mature have learned through long practice to distinguish between good and evil, right? And so we as Christians need to grow not just in our understanding of the virtues and not just understanding what God wants. You really need to understand how sin works, how evil functions, what wrath produces. And the more you know about that, the more you can hold back yourself, predict how other people are going to attack you so you're emotionally ready for it, and so that you can respond constructively so you're not surprised. Listen, I'll just tell you, I get attacked fairly regularly. It's part of my work, right? And like, the more I know what's coming, because it's so predictable, the more emotionally prepared I can be for being attacked. And then when I know I'm going to be attacked, and somebody attacks me just like I expect they're gonna, I don't get angry, because I knew this was coming. I knew they were going to do it. And so now I'm ready to respond more positively and constructively, because I knew this was going to happen. Do you understand? Like, if you expect your teenagers to respond to you with, like, perfect clarity and wisdom, and then they, like, get all emotional, and then you get all emotional— that's not intelligent or wise, right? Like, there—you can predict these things, right? When a police officer pulls you over, he's going to feel a little angry and self-indignant that you did something wrong, and he's going to feel personally about it. So don't screw with him, right? Like, if you have somebody in authority and you don't submit to their authority, they're going to be upset by that. It shouldn't surprise you that they're irked at you. You could be ready for that. Okay. Third, be mentally ready for opposition. I basically covered that already, so let's keep moving. By, um, by disciplined faith, respond without wrath. So, see, part of it is like, Nick, is this just a, is this just a, a, a sermon, like a moral theory? Like, is, are, are, are we, we're Christians. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to have faith, right? Isn't, isn't our religion all about faith and having faith? And the answer is yes, it is. It's completely about faith. The question is, what are you supposed to be doing with your faith? You have faith, then what do you do with that faith? Well, one of the things you do with that faith is you discipline that faith. In faith, you decide, what is this for, and what do I need to discipline myself not to fall into? In, in this context, it's wrath. You need to discipline yourself not to fall in wrath, and that takes faith, because you have to believe, because of who God is, because of what Christ has done, because I belong to Jesus, and because Jesus fosters unyielding meekness, but no wrath. The one who has every right to pour out every ounce of wrath holds it back, out of an unyielding meekness and a desire to redeem me even when I am full of wrath and I'm his enemy. That is the one I belong to, and that is the one in whose image I'm being remade. And so I am not going to be a wrathful person. Or I am going to apologize because I was just a wrathful person. Right? If you have—if you're a rage monster, listen— you got a few years in front of you of just apologizing every single time and doing it a little less and a little less. Like, it takes time. It does take time. Because if you give yourself to wrath or any of the deadly sins, and then you try to get over them, the problem is, is though sin has weakened you over time. And so for a while, that sin is going to continue out of infirmity or weakness. But as you apologize for it and let it humiliate you and say that it's wrong and know that it's wrong and seek to respond with meekness— You'll grow in spiritual strength through faith as God nourishes you by His Spirit, and that sin of infirmity will slowly go away. It won't be in a moment. You'll recognize it's wrong in a moment. You can repent in a moment, but overcoming the infirmity of that sin is going to take some time. But the people who are hanging with you and are really frustrated at that in you, they'll see you changing, and they'll hang in there with you because they'll, they'll know 
progress is being made. And they can wait and be patient with God who is patient if they know that you're making war against that sin. Do you understand? And then in developed faith, respond to wrath with meekness. Like, when you face wrath, you're ready for it. Anybody who builds has to be ready for wrath. And so you're ready for it, and you respond with meekness. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep moving. The second thing is anyone who builds must prepare for weakness. Anybody who builds has to be prepared for wrath. They also have to be prepared for weakness. Okay. Nehemiah 4.10 says, says this. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, so there is so, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Okay, now, what's happened here is, after the ridiculing, right, Nehemiah and the people keep building the wall. And so then these people up the ante, and so there is a specific attack of a misinformation campaign to destroy the work, okay? If you, if you notice in chapter 4, too, when, when the Jews were like, we can't do this, they, it says this, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whoever, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Who's them? Who's them in that passage, right? It's Sanballat, Tobiah, Gershom the Arab, and these other people, right? They're talking to the people in the towns nearby, and they're saying, look, we're, they're going to come and attack you guys. They're going to kill you guys. And so there's all these Jewish people who are in these towns outside of Jerusalem who are not protected, who are afraid that, like, some raiding party is going to come in and slit everybody's throats and rape or steal women and destroy the crops. Or, like, and all, because all these men and all this energy is being spent on Jerusalem to build the walls. And so there's no way to defend all the towns, and so there's all these whispers, right? Listen, have you seen Jerusalem? Like, your husbands are off— and your sons are off building this wall, they're never going to build that wall. Like, in your head, you might think building a wall is possible. It's not possible. The whole city is full of trash. They're never going to be re rebuilt. There's too much rubble. And, and meanwhile, you're going to get killed. And so these people, who they're, they're not at the wall. They're not seeing the rebuilding being done. So they're not encouraged by the reality. In their minds, they're hearing, the wall can't be rebuilt. There's no way to succeed, and we're going to get killed. There's no win, and we're going to lose everything, right? That's how they feel, and they're hearing that, and they don't—they're not putting together, hey, you're a liar. <laughs> it, like, of course you're telling me a lie. That's not how fear works, right? And so they're sowing these seeds of fear, right? Tobiah and all his little mouths all around Jerusalem into all these little towns. And the people are getting afraid, and they're starting to panic. They haven't seen the work in Jerusalem, and so they go. And listen, there's only one time in the whole Bible— where anybody says anything ten times. Do you understand? Right? In the Bible, if you say something twice or three times, it is a big stinking deal. Okay? It's a big, big deal. Okay? These people come to Nehemiah, and it says, he says, they said to me ten times over. Right? We can't do this. Ten times over. They were so adamant, right? Their will had been broken. They were panicking, as it says in the Princess Bride, panicking into error. Right? And if you're going to deal with opposition, okay, if you're going to build something and you're going to face opposition, you need to realize that part of what you're going to face is, face is wrath from without, without. And the second huge thing you're going to face is fear and weakness from within. Okay, people are going to get discouraged. People are going to get afraid. They're going to start to panic. They're not sure that we can do this. And it, it's scary for them, and it's scary for you, Right? Like, you sit down with a couple, and um, there's just been an affair in a marriage, right? And they've got, 
They've got kids at home and they know that this is, it's, this is a terrible thing. Everybody's broken up about it. And to say, let's rebuild this is terrifying. It's terrifying. Right? Or to say, um, somebody who's committed a crime and, and um, they're going to go to they're going to go to jail, and they're going to be—they're going to—but they, but they come back to Jesus about in that same thing, and they're like, all right, I need to serve Jesus in prison for five years. I don't want to do that. That's terrible. Like, people are—there's all kinds of things that following Jesus ends up looking like that's terrifying. Everything's terrifying, okay? Like, almost everything good is terrifying. And people naturally go weak, grow weak, and you're going to naturally grow weak in almost anything you have to do. You're going to feel—because because there is, biblically speaking, a misinformation campaign against you, right? Your own flesh inside your own heart that doesn't want to grow in godliness and doesn't want to do the good and wants to be lazy is saying, we don't need to do this. We really don't have to do this. We really don't need to do this. Do you really need to do this? We don't really have to do this, right? Then there's people outside of you who are like, you don't really need to do this. Why do you really need to do this? And it's, nothing good is going to come from it. And Christians believe in addition to that, there are devils who are in opposition to us. like, you don't really need to do this. You shouldn't have to do this, right? You might remember from a different part of the Bible that we covered recently. We were just in Ephesians, right? And we talked about how the flaming darts of the evil one that are extinguished with the shield of faith and the armor of God, like— Flaming arrows are not particularly good at killing people, right? They're ballistically floppy, and they don't fly as far because they have the fire on them, right? But they're really intimidating. They're designed to break the will, right? Listen, in every military conflict in the history of the world, just about, with any leader who had any sense, there is always a campaign to break up the unity of the people they're fighting against and to break the will to fight the resolve of the people they're fighting against. Nobody wants to fight a unified, resolved enemy. And so what you do is you like, you get in there and you're like, are you sure you want to work with that guy? Are you sure you guys want to be with these people? Right? You try to get them to fight each other. I mean, best case scenario is everybody kills each other and the rest of the people quit. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is people are just afraid they don't know what to do. Right? And you, what you need to realize is, is everything you seek to do in life, whether it is to grow in godliness, to work to end some injustice, to participate in the vibrancy of your community or neighborhood, to lose weight, like anything you want to do that is not an easy good. There's going to be opposition, but there's also going to be the, the human issue of weakness. And if you face that with just anger or self-loathing, you're not going to get anywhere. What you need is unyielding meekness that stirs up zeal, right? So, collaboration is this. Expect the natural weakening of your motivation. Okay? So if you say, I'm going to do X, whatever that is. I'm going to do X, some good that you think God is interested in. You need to expect there to be opposition to that. And you need to expect a natural effect on your resolve over time. Okay? So for example, if you go to college at a very, at a very secular university, it's going to be—it's de decently likely that the— the environment of your dorm is not going to be very pro-Jesus. It's decently likely that a lot of the lectures you're going to hear are not going to be pro-Jesus. It's going to be decently likely that people are—you're going to—you're going to interact with some sort of antagonistic, Christianly antagonistic content, and you need to realize that it's not—you're not just dealing with that on a truth level. Are these claims true, or are these claims false? There is an emotional level that there's a natural weakening of the flaming arrows constantly coming in, even if you're blocking them. And you need to recognize that. You need to know that about yourself. We tend to be like the people we're around. We tend to become like them over time. We tend to want to capitulate in the face of conflict. 
We just tend to be like that, right? Especially if you, do, if you have a temperament that's just naturally agreeable and open, right? And then secondly is you need to apply faith to zeal against sloth. So you see, in the face of wrath, meekness is the direct application in faith. I reject wrath. I embrace meekness. When in opposition you face your own weakness and the weakness of others you're trying to help, you don't reject— so what weakness that weakness will produce is sloth. That is a loss of the will to do the good. Sloth is not just eating bonbons on a couch watching soap operas, becoming as fast as you can as possible. Okay, that's not what sloth is. Sloth isn't just playing video games in your mom's basement and not getting a job. Okay? If that's wrong, when it's wrong, it's not wrong because you aren't, aren't doing anything industrious. It's wrong because you have no zeal for the good. Right? What is the will of God? What does God want to do? And do you care? Remember the first week when we talked about burdens? And I, I said there's a huge difference between caring about God and caring about the things God cares about. Zeal is caring about God and then caring about the things he cares about and wanting to participate in the goods that he's after. That's what zeal is, and that is the opposite of sloth. And when weakness happens, what do you do with faith? How do you apply faith? You say, well, I guess I have to have faith. It's more than that. You have to apply faith to something. How do you apply faith? You say, this weakness is going to drive me to sloth towards an unwillingness to fight for the good, to care about the good, and to let it move me. I need to apply my faith to relook at the beauty of the good, the goodness of the good, the worthwhileness of the good, how God-centered that good is, how much God cares about it, how important it is, who I am if I'm part of it, and who I will become if I give up on it. And I will not be that person, and I will be this person, and I am going to follow Jesus in that thing. You have to stir back up again. Right? In Romans 12, 11 and 12, it says this. It just, this is just verse 11, actually. Paul is commanding Christians, never be lacking in zeal, but keep up your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Does that make sense? Now, who, who is the impetus on there? Is the impetus on God to keep up your spiritual zeal? It's not, is it? It's a command to us. The Lord is telling us, listen, you— have to keep up your, your zeal. You have to keep up your spiritual fervor, your desire for the good. There, there are things you do actively for that. And in doing so, you have to reject that feeling of sloth when it comes, and that weakness that tends to come in opposition, and you have to fight in your heart for your love of the good and what God loves, and, and the desire to act on its behalf in His glory, and for how much you love doing that. It's one of the reasons why you can't you can't persevere as a Christian if you don't love God. How do you stir up zeal for the things God loves and live boldly with unyielding meekness into something like that if you don't love God? You have to love God and love what he loves and have that burden so that there is something in you to stir up that zeal with so that sloth doesn't take your heart when you face your own weakness and the weakness of others. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to work when you face, when people around you are falling into that weakness and sloth, to just yell at them and shame them. You don't see that with Nehemiah. When these people come to Nehemiah and say, this work can't be done, his response isn't, you cowards. Right? Let's look at what he says really quickly. Responding to opposition requires unyielding meekness. So you need to be ready for wrath, you need to be ready for weakness, and you need to be ready to respond with an unyielding meekness. Right? So all these people were angry at him, and he's like, they did all this stuff, and they ridiculed us, and he said, and what did they do? 
We got out our swords and we snuck into their houses in the middle of the night. We slit their throats. That's not what he did. He said, here's what we did. We built the wall. They yelled at us. They ridiculed us. They hated us. We built the wall. Right? They told lies. They did all this stuff. What did we do? We built the wall. Unyielding. Right? Okay, there's four things he does that are kind of unyielding. One, one is, is that prayer and action always go together with Nehemiah. Do you notice this in, in the text? So, so they, they ridicule him, and he, he prays. He prays something of what we might think is an ungracious prayer, where he's like, God, please give them over to people who will take them into captivity and ruin their lives. Right? And it is a—it's a fitting prayer because— these people who are attacking them have no compassion or mercy about the fact that these people have been in exile and their lives have been ruined and they're just trying to rebuild their lives, right? But listen, if you compare that to praying a prayer like, God, please forgive them. They they're, they're just—they're trying to be nice. They're nice people, but they're just a little angry right now. If you compare it to that, it's not a very gracious prayer. If you compare it to him going and killing them or writing a letter to the emperor to have them deposed and— impaled on a big stake, which he probably could have done, right? Well, then it's a very gracious prayer. What he does is he takes the wrath that he wants to unleash on these people, and he gives it over to God, right? Which is exactly what Romans 12 says, right? Like, if you're angry and you, like, feel like you deserve wrath, you need to leave room for God's wrath, and you need to give it over to him. God is the only one who can execute wrath justly because we are too full of an evil, self-interested wrath. Do you understand? And so, Nehemiah prays, but then he, then he does something, right? So he prays, and then he builds the wall, right? And then the, in the next situation, um, there's an attack coming. So he prays, and he sets out guards, right? And then he prays, and then he accommodates refugees, and then he changes the structure of the building project, and he prepares his defenses. Like, all the way along the way, he looks to God, and then he acts like a steward, right? If Nehemiah had a plaque in his office that said, let go and let God, okay? Maybe he did in Hebrew, right? He didn't mean by that, let go of your responsibility and let God take responsibility for your responsibility. What he meant was, let go of your stress and let God worry about what only God can worry about. And then he read that little sign and said, Okay, God, you do your part. And then he got up and he went out and he did his responsibilities. He moved the thing forward. He was a steward, right? So hey, listen, if you want to be like, let, we need to let go and let God. We need to trust the Lord. You absolutely need to trust the Lord. And you need to trust the Lord to do everything that God said he would do. And it's, therefore, it's very important to read the Bible and understand what God said he would do and what God commanded you to do. And Nehemiah is the governor of Jerusalem, and it is his job to build the wall. And so he prays to God, and then he goes and he does the stuff. And when you face opposition, do not leave out either of those two things. And don't see them as opposites of each other. They go together. You pray, and then you act, right? That is basic Christian spirituality, right? Second is, is that he keeps moving forward. F-I-T-R-D is—it's a high point saying, fail in the— right direction, right? Like, you're not going to be successful all the time. Even when you're trying to move forward, you're going to trip, you're going to fall, you're going to fail. Like, we, we as human beings, we're not all that smart, and we're not all that good. But listen, we can set our compass on the Lord Jesus, 
We could try to keep in step with the Spirit. We could try and grow in the mind of Christ. And when we fall, we can fall forward. And then we get up and we keep moving. And what he does over and over again is that he finds a way to keep the project going. He just keeps moving. Now listen, you can't literally always keep moving forward. That isn't actually possible. So for example, in the book of Ezra, there's a place where they're building the temple. And the the work of the temple gets stopped. And there's some time before God intervenes and restarts it. But all this time, they're trying to restart it. And if you, if you just stop trying to move forward, weakness sets in, and quitting sets in, and sloth sets in. Right? Like, if you've ever been on a backpacking trip where you just felt like you couldn't go any further, okay, fine. Just focus on the next step. I can't tell you how many kids I had on trips like that, or my, myself. And I'm just like, I'm not thinking about two miles, but I need to keep moving. Because once you stop, man, it's hard to start. Third is, keep looking for new opportunities. Right? So, Nehemiah is pretty slick at one point. So, notice how God helps him. Like, did you notice how God makes this all go? There's an incredible providence of God here. So Sanballat plays his hand too hard. He tells all the people that there's no way that the, that the wall can be built, and then he says, we're going to come and kill you. So the people come in from the towns, and they tell Nehemiah ten times over, we got to quit. There's no way to build this. Now, what did they do when they came to tell him that? They had to go to the city, and what did they see when they went to the city? They saw the people building the wall, and they saw them working at it, and they saw that it could be done. They saw that the wall wasn't so full of rubble that it couldn't be done, and it wasn't so full of garbage. What it was full of was rubble, and what is rubble made of? Stones. And what do you build walls out of? Stones. They already had the wall right there. They just needed more hands to be like, put that there. Put that there. Put that there. And what did Nehemiah need if he was going to win a battle? More soldiers. <laughs> what did Sam Blatt send him? A pile of people who were scared. What do scared people need? A wall to hide behind. (laughs) And so instead of Nehemiah being like, you stupid cowards, he was like, wait a second here. We got people touring the project. They're really scared. We've got space in the city now. This could work. And he realizes that instead of just bulldozing, he was like, wait, okay, listen, no, I see you guys are scared. I get that. Listen, we have, spa- we have place in the city now. The wall is half, at, half its site. This is the safest place you could possibly be. And if you guys stay here, we can get this done a lot faster. And then life can go back to normal. You know what we should do? We should all team up. And now we got enough swords. We got enough people. We can do it all. This will work. And he probably either quadruple, triples or quadruples the number of workers. And the very thing that was going to destroy the project makes it go. Because as a leader, he's not so dumbed by wrath and angry that he can't see what's right in front of him. In an unyielding meekness, he's, he's calm. He's open to God's will. He's looking for what in step with the Spirit looks like here, right? And he's, he's trying to figure out how to get the thing done. He's not personally offended that these people don't believe in him. He's like, how do we get the wall built? How do we get this done? And he's like, and he sees it, right? And he does it. And it's because he's not so hardened and rigid by his anger that his authority isn't being respected. He's so unyieldingly meek. He's unyielding. We're going to get this done. But he's meek enough to, to be looking at the best way to do it. And in that humility, he can do something great. Does that make sense? And then the last thing is, 
You gotta hold to absolute integrity in moments like this. You gotta hold absolute. This is not the time to be indulging entitlement, okay? Because listen, when opposition comes, opposition tends to create stress, okay? If you're already acting with integrity, you're gonna feel like you're working so hard, you're doing such good things, like somebody ought to give you a break. And this is exactly the moment not to feel that way and to go along with that feeling. So many leaders who get stressed out, who are overworked, who are working on projects, who are trying to move things forward in their life, they go, I've worked so hard, I can take this break, right? It's kind of like, you've dieted so well, you should eat that cake. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of—it fe- sounds perfectly reasonable in your head. And it just completely defeats the purpose of everything that you're doing, right? And what you see with Nehemiah is, is when this happens, he, he splits up the men that are serving him into two groups. One group works on the wall, and one group serves as soldiers because—why does he do that, right? Well, because if all of his guys are soldiers, people could say, well, you guys are doing the easy job. You're just standing around with spears. You're not even moving stones. But if all of his guys are moving stones and other people are carrying spears and swords, people are like, you know, you guys are doing the safe job rather than being ready to fight. So he splits in two so that nobody can attack him, right? And then he's like, listen, we're all going to have to like basically not, not sleep in our beds. You can sleep over there with that guy awake, ready to fight, but like you're not going to get to like put on your face cream, okay? That's not going to happen. And it says that not only did he never even take off his clothes, but his brothers didn't take off his clothes, and his servants didn't take off their clothes, and he says, and nobody, none of my people, right? That is, nobody that the normal Jewish worker would have associated with Nehemiah breaks ranks. Every single person, not just Nehemiah himself, but everybody associated with him, lived, did everything everybody was supposed to do. They were exactly on everybody's level, and they did it exactly right. So that there was no possibility of a breach of integrity to destroy morale. And when you're facing opposition, the stress is always going to feel like you just want to indulge yourself in something. And, and that is exactly the moment to do the opposite. To commit yourself to absolute integrity. Okay, now. Um, one of the questions always to ask in passages like this is, who are you in this passage? Right? I remember listening to Dan Doriani and um, Tim Keller talking about the story of David and Goliath, where he says, um, you know, everybody wants to be David in the story of David and Goliath, right? To be that person brave enough to walk out there and hit that guy in the head with a stone, and like, that's me, right? And then you might even be like, well, no, we're actually the children of Israel. Like, David wins the battle, and then we, we win the battle because he won it for us, Right? And Nehemiah, I mean, in some ways, you should identify with Nehemiah because he's the archetype we're all supposed to pattern, we're supposed to want to be like. He's the true north in this story for our souls to follow, to try to be like, right? He's the hero. And it's good to identify with the hero. You should identify with the hero of the story. But spiritually speaking, is that who you're most like in the story? Is that who I'm most like in the story? Right? Maybe I'm like one of the builders. Maybe it's not even that good. Right? I mean, maybe you're like Sandblatt. Like, you're the bad guy. And you're against it, and like, you're actually against God's work in a way, and like, you don't even get what's going on, right? Okay, 
maybe it's not even that good, right? Who's worse than Sambalat in the story? Well, I would argue Tobiah is worse than Sambalat in the story. Not only are you on the devil's side, you are his voice piece, and your whole life is sycophancy of like worshiping the bad guy. You're not even the bad guy. You're just worshiping the bad guy, right? But that's what worldliness is, right? It's worshiping the God of mammon and doing whatever we want and not obeying the Lord and not really being his and not serving him with all our hearts, really being his enemy while acting like we're his friend and not even really being the bad guy, just worshiping the bad guy, hoping the bad guy's going to give us the stuff we want. And when we looked at the story of humanity, that's how people behave. They're idolaters. And if we audited your life spiritually, how would you do? Right? Nehemiah was incredibly gracious. He is the spiritual hero of this book. But there is, there is one leader who, when he came to build, said about the Sanballats and Tobias, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who created worshipers like Stephen, who when he, when he was being stoned by his opposition, he said, my God, do not hold this sin against them. Right? He was the one who widened the calling of redemption beyond just those even willing to build the wall, but he widened it even to call in those who are the absolute abstract enemies of the good he was doing. And even when they threatened to tear down the thing that he was doing, he was still working for their salvation, still working for their redemption, still working to bring them in, right? And so, like, I, like I want to be Nehemiah. And I'm probably to buy half the time. And in this place where I am, where I have to fight wrath and give myself to unyielding meekness and kill sloth and seek through faith to fill my heart with zeal, seeking the Lord, I need to start with the Lord. And I think you do too. I think we all do. You need to start with the fact that there is one greater than Nehemiah who is building something in the universe that is great and beautiful and that you can be a part of and that he can make you into something like himself but that it starts by an absolute surrender to the beauty of his will and who he is and that he did everything for us first. So for the rest of the service, we're going to be doing communion and some worship. And that's how you start fighting wrath and sloth and applying faith to zeal and to meekness is by starting with the, with the one who was full of zeal and meekness for you and for your salvation and is still that zealous for your heart. Does that make sense? Let me pray while some folks come up here. God, we pray that you would take this moment in time. We, we note that we are 2,500 years from Nehemiah in this present moment. And this is a great story that is true that happened in the past and that its relevance right now is, is right here in our lives. And we pray that you would fill us with the thing Nehemiah was filled with the very thing that made him meek, the very thing that made him zealous, the very thing that filled him with faith, his belief in you, that you would fight for him, that you would build your kingdom, that you would build your wall, that you would save a people, that you would redeem. We pray that as we do this ritual together, that you've commanded us, as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would fill our hearts with a love for what you love in zeal, and that you would fill us with an unyielding meekness in following you. In Jesus' name, amen.